In the worldview of the Bible, how you treat other people is who you are. How you treat your parents is a reflection of how you think about God. Now, does that excuse bad parenting? Of course not. We're, we're talking about how the world is wired, not how it always functions. The point of this proverb is that when a person rebels against a primary aspect of the social order, that person must be and ought to be rebuked. A good king will do that now. The good king will do it later. Either way, you don't want to live your life on the wrong side of this proverb. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. How you treat other people is who you are. Proverbs 19 has a lot to say about how we should relate to our parents, to the government, and to the poor. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 19. Most of this chapter has to do with wealth and money, with the last few verses having to do with fools and their proper punishment. If you're a leader of a home, a business, or a leader in the Christian church, you will find plenty of wise and practical counsel in this chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Bruce Welke gives this little subunit in verses 1 to 3, the heading, Wealth and Ethics, and that seems to fit fairly well. The basic idea is that wealth is good, but only if you pursue it the right way. Better to be poor than to accumulate wealth through deceitful speech or action. You want to do things the right way, for the right reasons, at the right pace. Otherwise, you might accumulate a great pile of goods that you will have to surrender in shame on Judgment Day. We should notice here that folly or foolishness is treated as an ethical category. Tremper Lungman III points that out, saying... Fools are not only dull of mind and do stupid things, they are also evil people. In particular, according to this proverb, they speak in a way that does not faithfully reflect reality. Quote. Stupid is not a morally neutral category in the Bible. We are supposed to know right from wrong. We are supposed to know wise from foolish. And we can know those things because they are pointed out for us clearly in the Bible. Therefore, if you don't know, or if you act like you don't know, or if you do know but don't care, those are all just different flavors of the same sin, the sin of rebellion. You are rejecting the counsel of your creator. You're making it up as you go, and all your rules incline toward outcomes that are beneficial to you. Fancy that. Or better yet, folly that. According to the Bible, Foolishness is not just ignorance or lack of knowledge. As verse 3 makes clear, foolishness comes from a heart that rages against the Lord. Verse 4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. 
A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. Bruce Walke gives this unit the heading, Wealth and Companions in Court. Verses 4, 6, and 7 here parallel a teaching that is given in multiple places in the book of Proverbs. We last encountered it in Proverbs fourteen twenty. As I mentioned there, the wise father is not commending this attitude. He's simply pointing it out as an aspect of human nature. We all want to be friends with the rich because it puts us near the resources we feel we need to realize our dreams. On the other hand, we all naturally incline away from the poor because we're worried that they'll make a claim on our limited time, treasure, and talent. A wise person understands their own fallen psychology, not so as to be ruled by it, but so as to exercise mastery over it. The Apostle Paul was aware of this natural tendency, so he said to his people in Romans 12, 16, Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Born-again Christians, filled with the Spirit of Jesus, are going to increasingly incline toward the poor and the vulnerable. But in doing so, they will need to press through this natural tendency. So it's very helpful for us to be aware of it. Verse 5 also repeats a common theme in Proverbs. See Proverbs 6.19, 12.17, and 25, 19.9, and 21.28. Verse 8 appears to represent a slight transition. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. This verse offers up further motivation to the Son, and by extension to all of us, in pursuing wisdom. Learning is an act of self-care. It leads to happiness, well-being, and success. In verses 9 to 12, the focus shifts to wisdom at court. We remember, of course, that the original audience for this anthology was a royal son. And as such, he needs to know what behaviors to encourage and which to censure. Verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. Even in a world of DNA evidence and constant video surveillance, It remains true that a false witness can destroy lives. Accusations are printed on the front page of newspapers, whereas retractions and exonerations generally don't get mentioned at all. And social media makes things even worse. Accusations get clicks. Evidence, on the other hand, is boring. While I think we should celebrate the improved sensitivity toward victims, particularly in the church, and while we should insist on good policies around how accusations are received and investigated, it remains true that false accusations are a real threat 
to social order and stability. No society can survive when accusations are treated as unassailable. Human nature is such that if accusations can be weaponized for purposes of revenge or advancement, then they will be. So there has to be a process. There has to be a standard of evidence. And as the wise father is saying here, there has to be a strong deterrent against false accusation. In Deuteronomy 19, 18 to 19, it says, The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, close quote. A king who does not move strongly against false witnesses has essentially forfeited his kingdom. Where there is no truth, there is no justice. In verse 10, we have another one of those proverbs about misfits and oddities. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury. When you see that, you're seeing something that kept Solomon up at night. We'll get into whether or not Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes when we begin exploring that portion of the wisdom corpus, but... These not-fitting proverbs constitute part of the argument in favor of his authorship. Solomon was distressed when the moral law of the universe was resisted or obscured, like it is in this particular proverb. Wise conduct is supposed to lead to flourishing. So when you see a fool living in the lap of luxury, there is something terribly wrong with the world. Solomon would likely not have enjoyed a great deal of what we call reality television. That's not how the world is supposed to work. But that is the way the world sometimes does work. It's the current reality. But don't worry, the bug in the system will eventually be corrected. There's a final judgment coming when foolish and wicked gains will be wiped off the board. Verses 11 and 12 seem to go together, a point Derek Kidner makes. He says, Subordinates may learn tact here, and superiors pleasantness. Perhaps the position of this proverb next to verse 11 emphasizes for the benefit of the powerful the quiet fruitfulness of the latter quality. Quote. Again, this was originally written for a royal son. If we imagine that the royal son was Rehoboam, then there's great irony here because this was exactly the lesson that he failed to learn. Rehoboam, influenced by his foolish friends, leaned heavily toward the harsh and exacting. He said to the delegates of the northern tribes, as recorded in 1 Kings 12.11, Whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions, closed quote. And with that, he lost a kingdom. A good leader prefers to deal in gentleness. Now, he knows he can't always do that, but he prefers to do that. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.10 said, For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down, close quote. So Paul did as much of his teaching and correcting as possible through his letters so that when he was there in person, he didn't need to be harsh and severe. Letters give people time to process. 
Letters can be crumpled up into a ball and thrown across the room into the garbage and then pulled out the next day and given a second read. The hope was for things to have settled down prior to personal confrontation. Listen, a leader who loves confrontation and whose style is defined by confrontation is a fool. He is Rehoboam. He is the young man who ought to have heeded this wise counsel. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second because I think that is a really important corrective. I feel like we're in the middle of a pendulum swing when it comes to leadership in the church. In the 80s and 90s, pastors, I think, drifted towards the more CEO types and, in some cases, entertainers. And in the last 10 years, I think we've entered into a season where pastors are way more theological and doctrinal. And I think that's a good thing. But it does feel like, in some cases, the pendulum has swung too far now. And we have a number of younger pastors who feel like being extreme in all their opinions and engaging in constant conflict with other pastors and even your own people is somehow a badge of fidelity. But Proverbs seems to be saying that being overly harsh and exacting is unwise. It's hard for people to bear, and it doesn't lead to stability and human flourishing. So is there a middle ground here? And if so, how can we find it in today's church? Well, that is the million-dollar question. Listen, I, I definitely don't want to go back to the pragmatism and shallowness of the 80s and 90s in the church. I like the depth, and I appreciate the substance that has come back into the church in recent decades. But I do think that every leadership strength has its shadow. And I think it's probably true that leaders who are strong in doctrine and theology may need to work on their personal and social skills, and they may need to be reminded that wisdom is a form of truth as well, and wisdom never goes out of style. So it will always be true that we need to pick our battles, and we need to be slow to anger, and we need to be careful about kicking over a hornet's nest. That was wise 3,000 years ago, and that remains wise in the house of God today. Amen to that. Let's jump back into the program audio now at verse 13. In verses 13 to 15, the focus shifts now to wisdom in the house. A foolish son is ruin to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. As we were just discussing, Solomon had a foolish son, and his father David had a quarrelsome wife. We remember the sad ending of the love story between David and Michal. Both family experiences are here distilled into wise counsel, or at least wise observation for us all. Verse 14 repeats in principle what was communicated in Proverbs 12.4 and 18.22. Verse 15 repeats one of the most common themes in the entire book, the sure connection between laziness and poverty. Now, again, to be clear, the sureness of that connection runs only one way. It is sure that laziness leads to poverty. It is not sure that all poverty is the result of laziness. As we saw in Proverbs 13, 23, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So, while all laziness leads to poverty, as a general rule, not 
all poverty can be traced back to laziness. Many experiences of poverty are actually due to injustice. That is a very important distinction. Walke gives verses 16 to 23, the subtitle, Educating the Son to Show Kindness to the Needy. Whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his ways will die. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. If Walke is right in seeing these verses as a grouping, then the point would be that parents should discipline their sons, and by extension their children generally, to be generous to the poor as both the law and wisdom require. Failure to do so is unjust and unloving. Now, if you don't buy into Walke's grouping, then the same basic points are made, but in a more general sense. Verse 16 would be saying that the one who keeps the commandments generally is doing himself a favor, whereas the one who despises the law complicates his own journey. Verse 17 would be saying that a gift to the poor will be repaid at the final judgment. And then verse 18, in a general sense, is saying that disciplining our children is an act of love. Failing to do so, while it feels like kindness, is actually a form of assault. On balance, I favor the arrangement proposed by Walke. I think we're talking about disciplining our children in the direction of benevolence and kindness, particularly to the weak and vulnerable of society. Though I agree with others that each proverb can be interpreted coherently on its own. Verse 19, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you'll only have to do it again. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Verse 19 seems to be saying that perpetually angry people will constantly and inevitably be racking up penalties and fines. If you bail them out today, then you're going to have to do the same thing tomorrow. Until the anger is dealt with, such people cannot be rescued. Far better not to be associated with them at all. Avoid angry people and seek out wise people that you may gain wisdom in the future. In verse 21, the wise father returns to a theme he's mentioned previously in chapter 16, verse 1, and in chapter 16, verse 9. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. From verses like this one and the others previously mentioned, we get the English proverb, man proposes, but God disposes. That's a humble way of saying that we must always leave room in our planning and accounting for the active providence of God. Verse 22, what is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. Here the wise father is reminding the royal son of what he should look for in his friends and advisors. What you want is a man, a person of steadfast love, a person of faith and loyalty. doesn't matter whether he is rich or poor. Far better to ally with a poor man of faith and loyalty than to join hands with a liar, no matter how much money he has. Before we leave this section dealing with wealth and money, we would be wise to pay attention to the warning given by David Atkinson in his commentary. He reminds us, We cannot use Proverbs to boost the sort of prosperity gospel which some televangelists, especially in the United States of America, seem to offer. Come to God, 
preferably with your checkbook ready, and all your problems will be over. In some respects, many of the Proverbs on their own can be taken as a sort of success manual, and indeed have been so taken by the prosperity gospelers. But as we have said before, we need to see the Proverbs partly as pertinent pictures to shake us and ask us to think again, and partly as an aspect of the wider wisdom tradition in which suffering, pain, and uncertainty also have a role in the life of faith. The book of Job, for example, refuses to allow us to follow the prosperity gospel route. Closed quote. Amen to that. In verse 23, we enter a section having to do with fools and their punishment. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. So in contrast to the fear of the Lord, which is the motto associated with the way of wisdom, the sluggard won't even do the work that directly benefits himself. Verse 25 says, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Derek Kidner sees in this verse three distinct mental makeups. He says, Here are three varieties of mind. Closed, he puts in brackets, the scorner. Empty, he puts in brackets, the simple. And open, and he puts in brackets there, the discerning. He accepts even a painful truth, closed quote. So we have closed, empty, and open. The closed-minded person is always sharing his opinion and telling you why everyone else is an idiot or a coward, but he actually doesn't know anything. He, he does his research on the interweb and despises anyone who would normally be considered an expert. He can't be taught. The wise king will punish such people so that at the very least they can serve as an example to the simply ignorant. The simply ignorant, that's our second category, are people who need to be awakened to reality. They're not wicked. They're just naive and unaware. Such people can be taught. Such people can be salvaged. The third category, the open-minded, are those who are willing and eager to learn. And those are your most important subjects. Now, one can easily see the value of this sort of instruction for a young leader. I remember hearing something very similar when I was just becoming a pastor. I was told that there would always be people in my church who complained about everything and who wouldn't listen and who wouldn't do anything to help. And I was warned not to devote too much attention to such people. And then there were people who, if taught, would likely grow and contribute to the mission. Watch and monitor those folks. And then most glorious of all, there were people who were eager to grow, eager to be equipped, and eager to serve. They didn't get caught up in the gossip or the politics. They just wanted to be unleashed. They wanted to serve. Such people are pure gold. Count yourself blessed if you have a handful of them. Now, of course, divisions like that can be critiqued as overly simple. And as pastors, of course, we should also remember that some people present as grouchy and prickly because they've been hurt in the past. So... We need to be more patient than the average king. Even still, there are principles of wisdom in this council that ought to be retained. Verse 26. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. 
Tremper Longman III has a forceful, but I think faithful comment here. He says, children are to honor their parents, puts in brackets here, Exodus 20, verse 12. When they not only do not honor, but also positively shame them, they are worthy of utter contempt, close quote. In the worldview of the Bible, how you treat other people is who you are. How you treat your parents is a reflection of how you think about God. Now, does that excuse bad parenting? Of course not. We're, we're talking about how the world is wired, not how it always functions. The point of this proverb is that when a person rebels against a primary aspect of the social order, that person must be and ought to be rebuked. A good king will do that now. The good king will do it later. Either way, you don't want to live your life on the wrong side of this proverb. Verse 27. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. A worthless witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Condemnation is ready for scoffers, and beating for the back of fools. Verse 27 reminds us that receiving instruction is not a one-time thing. It is a lifelong commitment. The moment you stop learning, you start going astray. That is true in the spiritual life, and it's true in life in general. Verse 28 is yet another proverb condemning false testimony in court. A good king will punish those people severely, as per verse 9. Verse 29, which closes the chapter, reminds the royal son that his job is to punish scoffers and fools. The job of a king is to restrain and rebuke the wicked and to clear the path, as it were, for the righteous to flourish. The king, in this way, represents a provisional form of order and justice. His justice should mirror and anticipate the final justice that will be meted out on the last day. On that day, all ill-gotten gains will be wiped off the board. All scoffers will have their mouths shut forever. All rebels will be permanently exiled from the kingdom, and all fools will receive a fool's reward. I quoted earlier a caution provided by David Atkinson. I particularly appreciate his description of these proverbs as pertinent pictures to shake us and make us think again. That's exactly right. The book of Proverbs tells us what is and what will be, and that ought to shake us. And that ought to serve as an urgent warning to us. Proverbs, like the law, ought to drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ, there to be forgiven of our folly, there to be healed of our inner waywardness, and there to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who will strengthen us, guide us, and enable us to walk steadfastly on the path that leads to abundant and eternal life. Thanks be to God. Well, that's all the time we have for today, friends. As always, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find it over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.